Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. He was praying in a certain place, and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Prayer is a time to connect to the heart of God. God knows our needs before we ask, but we are still encouraged to ask. Conversation with God is to change our hearts rather than try to change God's mind. We can learn a lot by looking at the way that Jesus prayed. He taught us to pray by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. During this sermon series, we've been sharing highlights from the St. Luke's trip to Rome and all throughout Italy and Austria and down to Oberammergau, Germany, where we saw the Passion Play. And I know that a favorite place for many people on the trip was the town of Assisi. It really was an incredible place. When we returned home from the trip, Dr. Long shared a book with me about Assisi. And the title of it is Three Heroes in Assisi During World War II. And it tells the true story about three individuals who risked their lives to save countless number of Jewish families who came to Assisi uh, for refuge and who saved the city itself. The first of those three individuals was a German physician by the name of Valentin Mueller. He was a colonel in the German army. In fact, he was the commander of the German forces that were occupying Assisi at that time. But he was also a devout Catholic. And every morning at 7 a.m., he would take mass at the Basilica of St. Francis. He knew how important this city was to Christendom. He understood that between the churches that were dedicated to St. Francis and the one dedicated to St. Clair, this was a vital place of Christian history and Christian future for all that it said about peace and love and joy. And so he knew he had to protect the city at all costs. The only way to do that would be have it designated as a hospital city. He knew that time was running short because 
of what had happened to the nearby town of Monte Cassino. Monte Cassino was just about 50 miles away from Assisi, and when the Allied forces had attacked it, they had left it in ashes, and Assisi would be next. And so he kept calling and leaving message with Berlin to have uh, Assisi, <clears throat> excuse me, designated as a hospital city, meaning no one could attack it. But all of those messages went unanswered. And so he kind of did the unthinkable. He arranged for the designation of the city himself, and he got it declared as a hospital city and protected it. But it was also an act of treason in a time of war to do that without permission. So he took a great risk upon himself he also took a risk because he noticed the influx of people who were coming to Assisi, and he knew who they were. They were Jewish refugees. But he chose to turn a blind eye to all of the rescue efforts, and he wouldn't uh, seek after them or the people protecting them. Valentin Mueller knew that above his government, above the military, above his country, he served as part of the kingdom of God. The other two individuals who did so much during World War II for Assisi were the Bishop of Assisi, Monsignor Giuseppe Nicolini, and one of his priests, uh, Father or Don Aldo Bernacci. Now, Bishop Nicolini wanted to rescue as many Jewish families as possible. And so he made this possible and he opened up all the residences, including his own, and he found ways to hide Jewish families, sometimes even in plain sight. For some, he dressed them up in the garb of a monk or a nun and had them live at the monastery or the convent, even teaching them Latin so they wouldn't get caught. He understood the risk he was taking. He was threatened on many occasions by police, and he was even uh, kind of badgered by his own religious authorities who urged caution during the war. And he understood that there was no greater power than the power of God. For Father Brunacci, he was placed in charge of the rescue effort by the bishop. And so he understood that he had to take care of their safety, but also their, their well-being. And so he made ways for the children to be able to go to school as much as possible and for them to continue in their religious celebrations where possible. And so in 1943, when the Jewish community of Assisi celebrated Yom Kippur, it was the Catholic nuns who prepared the meal for their Jewish guests once they broke their fast. Father Brunacci understood that despite the risk, how he lived his life was a way to bring glory and honor to God. These three individuals, Valentin Mueller, Giuseppe Nicolini, and Aldo Brunacci, really were heroes for Assisi during that time. They understood what it meant because they were devout people of God who truly believed when they prayed, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. This morning, 
I'll be concluding our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, the prayer he taught us. Each week, we've been looking at the words we can use to pray, but also what those words mean in our lives. Today, we'll be looking at the very last phrase of the prayer, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, that line isn't included in most Bible translations, but it is one of the oldest worship phrases we have in the church. We have documented cases of it being used in worship before the end of the first century. That means it was being used and practiced as a way to give praise to God over 300 years before the books of the New Testament were collected and officially uh, formally canonized. It is probably the, one of the oldest liturgical statements we have in the church. Adam Hamilton wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer, and he believes that this last phrase of the prayer actually was part of worship long before the church adopted it. He says that it's attributed to King David in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, where David proclaims, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. As we look at this phrase, we understand that it's not just something that was added at the end. It really is an ancient form of praise that has modern implications in our lives today. This morning, we heard this scripture read from the Gospel of Luke. Now, largely throughout this sermon series, we've used the Gospel of Matthew's account of Jesus teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew uh, and Luke, Jesus is not only teaching the words to pray, but also kind of giving them a, a teaching lesson on what the words mean. In Matthew, it happens before he teaches them the words of the prayer. And he tells them, don't heap up piles of big words like the Gentiles do. They think that their prayers will be heard because of the many words they pray. Don't be like them. For your Father in heaven knows what you need before you pray it. And then he teaches them the prayer. In the Gospel of Luke that was read today, you notice that the teaching came afterwards. But both accounts are saying, not only is this prayer something that is part of your relationship with God, where you experience the love of God in your life, but it's also a way that you're called to live in the world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. I want to discuss three things this morning that can help us better understand uh, God's kingdom and the power we receive and the way that we can give glory to Christ. So first, let us live in the kingdom of God. Now, when we think of kingdom, we typically think of a castle surrounded by a high wall and a gate. Now, of course, the kingdom of God isn't like that. But I do believe that many of us have thought of it that way or practiced it for different times of our life. 
maybe not the castle part, but we thought about the kingdom of God being walled off from us and the gate was closed. And if we were just good enough or we did enough good things to kind of cancel out the other things we had done, that maybe someday the gate would open to us. Now, of course, that's not the kingdom of God. It's not a finite place and it's not closed off to us. We should know better what the kingdom of God is like because it's one of the subjects that Christ taught about the most. Remember the parable of the prodigal son and the loving father. Remember the parable of the good Samaritan and how we are called to show mercy. The kingdom of God is not a place, but rather a life lived with God, experiencing God for ourselves, and helping others to experience it as the children of God. It's that uh, both and where we know God's love for us and we help others to know it for themselves. Well, when we were in Assisi, we saw uh, the Basilica of St. Francis. And it's one of the most incredible places I've seen. When you go in, you see all the colorful frescoes all around the church walls, and they recount the life of St. Francis in beautiful colors and bright uh, detail. It is a place that kind of evokes a sense of joy and love. When you go to the town of Assisi, you feel this peace that overwhelms you. And I think it's a great example of the kingdom of God, what it means to live in God's spirit. In the Gospel of Luke, the teaching of Jesus comes after he teaches the prayer. When he goes into this long section, I encourage you to read Luke chapter 11 when you go home. But basically he says, you, if you have a child that comes to you and asks for fish, who of you would give them a serpent or a snake? Or who of you, if you had a child that asked you for an egg, would turn around and give them a scorpion. In other words, Jesus is saying, they're asking for food and nourishment and you give them something that attacks them or is harmful to them. None of us would do that. And Jesus says, if you then who are human and make mistakes know how to give good gifts to the people that you love, how much more so does our heavenly father give good gifts to his children? Jesus was saying that inherently all of us know what it means to be kind to our family and friends, but we have a limited number of people kind of in our circle. The holiness of God says that God loves all of God's children and creation. Now, this is very comforting to us because it says that God loves us and God welcomes us to live in this kingdom of God, but it's also a challenge to us because it tells us how we're to treat others. We're to give good gifts. We're to show loving kindness to those in need. Well, for St. Francis, he didn't start off as St. Francis of Assisi. He was born there and he was born into a family of great wealth and Francis grew up enjoying that wealth. His father was a cloth merchant uh, dealing with the finest of cloths, including velvet. And Francis liked to dress to the nines, and he dressed in the finest. 
And so he would pray and ask to be forgiven, and his fears just continued to increase. Francis began to almost live at the local church as a penitent, doing acts of penitence, prayer, fasting, and giving alms to the poor. He came to the point where he had given away everything he owned. His father went to beg him to move back home, and he was shocked to see his son so emaciated and so uh, dirty in rags and living in filth. He begged his son, but his son renounced his family claim, and he began more and more to punish himself through fasting and, and this fear that he would be afflicted with the disease. And it just spiraled out of control. Over the years, he started wandering out in the woods to be alone. He did love nature, but it allowed him to pour out his heart to God to ask for forgiveness for all of his sinful ways. And on one occasion, in the winter of 1206, his life was changed. Two robbers attacked him. Now, of course, he had nothing of value by this point. He had given it all away. And when they found he had nothing of value, they beat him up and they took his tunic and left him for dead in the snow. Well, he kind of summoned the strength and finally was able to make it to a nearby monastery where they tended his wounds and clothed him. And once he had regained his strength, he made his way back to Assisi. But on the way, he felt led by God to go to one of the leprosy encampments, the leprosarians, and they hired him to care for the residents. Now, I'm reading a book on St. Francis, and I want to, it's written by Augustine Thompson. I want to read to you how he describes what happened. As Francis showed mercy to these outcasts, he came to experience God's own gift of mercy to himself. As he cleaned the lepers' bodies, dressed their wounds, and treated them as human beings, not as refuse to be fled from in horror, his perceptions changed. What before was ugly and repulsive now caused him delight and joy. Just as suddenly, the sins that had been tormenting him seemed to melt away, and Francis experienced a kind of spiritual rebirth and healing. What Francis discovered was what it truly meant to live a life in the kingdom of God. To understand God's love for oneself, but also to live in a way that you could help people understand their beauty in the eyes of God and how much God loves them as children of God. If we will live knowing that God loves us, and sharing that love with others, that's what it means to live in the kingdom. And so second, the Holy Spirit empowers us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live life in the kingdom of God. Now that's a great comfort to us. It means that the kingdom of God is open wide to us and everything we need to live this life is freely offered to us because this power of God's Spirit is in us. And we can live looking for those opportunities to help others see the mercy and grace of God.
while on the trip, there were plenty of occasions where people saw uh, the power and the mercy of God. And I myself experienced that when at the Passion Play in Oberammergau. The evening before, I had been packing up because I knew that the next morning we'd be leaving for Oberammergau. And so I was putting my stuff all together and I realized I was missing my small travel wallet. Now I had a big travel wallet, I'm not sure why I took two, but it was a little bit more bulky and so I switched my passport and credit cards to the lighter version. Now it was something that kind of fit over your waistband, half of it on the outside, half of it on the inside, held firmly in place by really strong magnets. I'd been using it for a few days, and when I went to pack it, it was gone. And so I did that frantic search you do when you know you've lost something, and I searched every nook and cranny, every corner, every shelf and drawer of the room, and I couldn't find it. I unpacked all the clothes and repacked them, and I unpacked them again just to make sure I checked all the pockets, but it wasn't in my room. I had lost my passport and credit cards in this wallet. Well, I remembered that I had set my bags down the previous day when we were checking in. So I went to that area and searched all around and it wasn't there. I went to where we had eaten our meals and couldn't find it. I went to the front desk and of course, nobody had turned anything in. And then I realized I left it on the tour bus. But that meant I wouldn't be able to retrieve it until the next morning. And so. First thing the next morning, I went and I scoured my area where I was sitting and even looked within the upholstery as if it could have wormed its way up in, but it wasn't there. You know, kind of that frantic nature you get and it was, I couldn't find it. And so I made an announcement on the bus to see if anybody had found this small little black uh, wallet with pink trim and nobody did. I didn't tell them what was in it. But finally, you know, after telling my husband and, and son, I knew that I had to tell our tour guide. Uh, she was quite concerned for me and expressed that. I asked her not to tell the other people in the group because we only had a short time left and I didn't want people focused on worrying about that. And so I had this strange sense of peace. I knew that it would be found. I knew that it would turn up. But as we drove to Oberammergau, it was Friday, I knew that we were leaving Sunday morning. And so I knew it was probably going to be found. I just wasn't sure it would be found in time. And so I started to kind of resign myself that I might be staying in Munich. We were flying out of Munich and I might be staying a day or two extra in Munich uh, to get everything that I needed. I tried going to the US consulate website of Munich and it gave me an emergency number and I actually thought about it for a couple of seconds. I'm like, because I felt this peace, I asked myself, is this really an emergency? And then I thought it probably is. And so I called the number and it was Friday and I got a voice recording that says, uh, go to the website for more information. It was the same website that gave me the phone number. And so I knew I wasn't going to get an answer uh, during the weekend. And so by the time we get to Oberammergau for the Passion Play, I had resigned myself. I would be staying uh, a few days extra and I wouldn't get to come home with the group. And I shared that with my husband Chris and our son Brooks, just to put uh, everybody's minds at ease. And the three of us knew that it would all be okay. It would work out, it would just be a delay. 
So I entered, and we all sat down to watch the Passion Play. You know, it's in sections. You watch two and a half hours, then there's a three-hour intermission, and then the final two and a half hours. And so we got to the first, uh, the, the, excuse me, through the first half, and we get to the intermission, and we go to meet our tour guide at the meeting spot. And while we're waiting for the rest of the group to get there, she pulled me to the side. She had big tears in her eyes. And she said, someone turned in your passport. And it was at a tourist information center at a small town in Austria near where we had stayed. And we didn't have any other information than that. A passport had been turned in. And so the next day, my wonderful husband went by train and bus to go back to Austria to that small town and, and pick it up. And there was my wallet with all the contents intact. And then he made his way back to Munich. Because of the language barrier, we don't know what happened. We don't know who found it, where they found it. Uh, we only know that they turned it in. And how did they know I was on a tour group? How could they find the name of my guide and her phone number? I attribute it to the power of God. Not necessarily because I was praying. I was praying. <laughs> but because God was working in the lives of others. That someone found this wallet and was moved of spirit to go the extra mile and take it to a, a place where it would be safe. And the people at that location were moved to do all the legwork to find out who this person was and how they could get a hold of me. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, God hears us and answers us. But a lot of the time, God empowers us to be the answers to someone else's prayer. That's life in the kingdom. And so third, the glory of Christ goes on forever. When we pray this prayer, it's a prayer that's been prayed for over 2,000 years. And so our voices join the voices that have gone before and all the voices that will come long after us. We're a part of something bigger than just ourselves. And this kingdom of God isn't just our kingdom. It's the kingdom of God for all of God's creation. And it goes on to glorify God forever. We are part of something bigger than just us. And it's a movement that continues to go on and bless. The word for the Greek word for glory is doxa, which is the root word for our, our word doxology, a hymn of glory and praise to God. Something that we sing and know that we are singing something from the past that will go on to the future. The very week that I got back from the trip, I was asked to do uh, preside over the funeral service of a longtime church member, Jim Venables. Jim and his wife, Barbara, were much loved members of St. Luke's and of their uh, Sunday school class here, the wedding ring class. Jim was just an incredibly friendly, kind, loving person. I went to meet his daughter and planned the funeral only to discover that Jim had already done that. A few years back, he had written this letter and detailed everything he wanted in his funeral service. And the last thing he wanted, the last words to be spoken at his time of celebration were the Lord's Prayer. 
I wasn't surprised because she, has, she also showed me a stack of letters and emails he had written and sent to people, and the majority of them were prayers that he had prayed for his family and friends and then typed them out and sent them to the person he had prayed for. He was someone like St. Francis who loved nature, being outside, and he loved animals. He would pick up stray animals that were wounded or alone or abandoned uh, throughout his life. Um, some of them included an owl, a skunk, and a particularly mean raccoon, and experienced different levels of success with all of those. But he loved them. He loved taking his family fishing and being outdoors because he loved all of God's creation. He also had this wonderful habit of telling people that they were beautiful and that they were loved. It didn't matter if there was friends or family or anyone. If you were around him, he would talk about how beautiful you were and how much you were loved. He wanted people to know that they were children of God. And so when he passed away, his daughter had been with him, and then the nurses of this medical unit where he had been for quite some time started coming into the room, and they were just all crying. One after another talked about how he had told them how beautiful they were and how much he loved them and how much those words meant. As his daughter told the story to me, she said there was one uh, person in particular that came in that wouldn't uh, fit the traditional definition of a cultural beauty. And yet Jim had seen her in the same eyes as he saw everyone else as a child of God. And for this person, she came in crying, and, and finally she said, who will ever tell me I'm beautiful again? That's our job. That's the life we're called to, to help each and every person understand that they are beautiful in the eyes of God and they are loved as children of God. It means living this with the power of the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see all of our opportunities so that we might glorify Christ by the way we live. It truly is found in this line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayers. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.